bless this evening, bless us as we look at your word and, and go through the book of Jeremiah. We ask for your guidance and leading. And thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 25, we're going to be starting at verse 8. Uh, he's been preaching to the people and to Jehoiakim about the condemnation of it. It's 13th years before on this, so we're in verse 8. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take up from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstone and the light of the candle. And the whole land shall be desolate and astonishment and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So we're going to stop there because here's the, he was condemning Jehoiakim's rebellion against, against him and said, this is the result. Here's what's going to happen to you because of this disobedience. You have not been listening to my words. You have not heard my words. So here's the consequences. It says, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all the nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation. God said, I'm going to bring a great army against you, basically, all the, all the inhabitants of the north. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was going to come against them with everything he had, and they were a pretty insignificant nation by this time. And he says, God said, I'm going to make sure that you are taken completely. And this is something that is very important, that when God moves, everything happens. And he says, not only was Israel going to be taken around, but all the nations round about. So the Philistines, the uh, Assyrians, everybody was going to be taken in this attack. And that's exactly what happened. Babylon became one of the great first great empires Assyria made a pretty good empire, but Babylon took everything from Egypt all the way up out to India and became a great empire, one of the first big great empires, and took everybody captive. And so this is, this is what happened in history. And it says he will utterly destroy them and make an astonishment or an appalling whore. He says, I'm going to make you all just be a whore. And this is what really did happen to Israel when they were taken. Jerusalem was wiped out. The temple was wiped out. Their, their cities were wiped out. Everything was gone. And a hissing. And this is kind of, a, it's used a lot in the, in the prophets. A hissing, and it's kind of the intake. You're so amazed at what you, what you see and everything that you have that, hit, that kind of intake breath that, that, is, that they, they call a hissing. All right, so when we see that, that's what they're talking about and a perpetual desolation. And for a long time, Israel was desolate. And even, even when Jesus walked, Israel was pretty much a desert, desolate place. All the greenery and finery of it had gone. And they have not become a green, fertile valley until recently when they got back into, the, into 
nation of Israel in 1948, and they developed that land into a very lush, profitable uh, agricultural garden. And before it was a lush agricultural garden, God told them they were going into the land of milk and honey. And if you remember when Joshua and Caleb went in, it said that they had a cluster of grapes that was hanging between, on a pole between two men. That's a pretty big cluster of grapes. I don't know how big the grapes were in that cluster, but the cluster itself was a huge cluster. I don't know if the grapes themselves were big. Their testimony was very clear. The land is a great land. There's great, great, great fruits, great, great uh, grain. But they said there's one problem is that there's giants in the land. <laughs> and so they would never went in to take it. And when Israel was destroyed, everything was really wiped out in Israel at that point in time. It says that perpetual destruction until God turned that blessing around for them, it was a pretty desolate place. Nobody wanted to live there. They said there was giants in the land. Were they exaggerating or actually? Well, you had the Philistines that had Goliath and his brothers that were nine and a half feet tall. Uh, you know, I'm not sure there were giants in the land. If you, Yes, I believe there were real giants in the land. Uh, at that time, and we know that Goliath was there by David, even in David's day, but uh, and he had five brothers that were all as tall as he was. So there's probably literally giants in that land. I don't know if they were all nine foot tall or anything, but I'm thinking, you know, when, when you're only four foot tall and you're, if somebody was six, seven or eight feet tall, they're a giant. Because <laughs> even in our day, we have people that we call giants. You know, they're eight, eight and a half, nine feet, you know, eight to nine feet tall, and we call them giants because they tower above most everybody else. So were they giants like we think of, you know, our historic, you know, our mythological giants, you know, 25 feet tall? No, I think they were probably eight to, eight to, eight to nine feet tall, uh, maybe even seven feet tall, but to them, they were giants. So to what degree? I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've, I've always taken it literal. But I don't. I don't think of giants being huge, monstrous things that that mythology, that mythology talks about. So all of this judgment was going to come against them. Why? Because they were not listening to God. And remember, we talked about how Jeremiah has talked about altars and idols on every street corner in Jerusalem, and and the evil that they were following, and they weren't willing to listen. And then verse 10 says something very interesting. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, and the sound of the millstone and the light of the candle. And this is kind of interesting because I started looking and thinking about this. What was God saying? I'm going to take away all your daily joys and blessings. Any mirth that you have, anything that makes you happy, I'm taking it away. Anything that makes you glad, I'm taking it away. The sound of marriage and the bride, you know, the, the family, the whole idea of family life. He says, I'm taking that away from you. I'm going to take away the grinding of the bread, your daily food, and the light of your houses and the joy of your houses. So basically saying, I'm taking away all your daily blessings and joys. And this, when you think about how complete this list is, you go, wow, God, you really brought devastation on it. And then we read in other places where they go into captivity in Babylon, and some of the Psalms talk about them hanging up their harps. They would not sing the songs of God 
because they would bring joy and mirth, but they also brought sorrow because they weren't where they belonged. So they hung up the idea of singing songs and bringing, bringing praise to God and lived basically miserable lives in Babylon. And so God said that's exactly what he was going to do. I'm going to take away the joy, the, the, the pleasure, the, the enjoyment. And I think about how much in our day and age the same thing is happening. People aren't enjoying family. They aren't enjoying life. Uh, you know, they're living for the weekend or whatever, and it, you know, they're depressed when the weekend's over, even though the weekend didn't fulfill all of what they wanted. Uh, but they're living for that two-day weekend where they can go out and party hard and not worry about having to do anything. And then they're depressed the rest of the week, and they're actually depressed even on the weekend because it didn't meet their expectations. And I think that happens all the time. God says, I'm gonna, you're not listening to me. I'm going to take away everything that should bring joy. And I love this. As a Christian, I have joy because God's in charge. And I can say, I'm just looking at what he wants and follow through with him. And he says, this is what's going to happen to them. And it says, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment or a horror. And these nations, it's shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. This was the prophecy that Daniel understood when it came to the end of the captivity. And he's going, it's been 70 years. And he starts looking for the, the release. And Isaiah had said, it's going to be 70 years. And he says, Cyrus will be my shepherd to release you. And Daniel looks around, and who's in charge of the kingdom of the Medes and Persians? But Cyrus. Uh, so he's going to say, all right, it's time to go home. All we've got to do is get Cyrus to make the agreement for us to go home. And kind of nice to know how long your punishment was going to be, I guess, as long as you were young enough to live to 70 years old or, or young enough to live to 70 years. So if you're 10 years old and you live to 80 years old, you go, okay, now it's time to go home. Um, if you're 70 years already, you're kind of like, okay, I'm going to be in captivity for the rest of my life, which is exactly what he's been saying all along, that a lot of you will die in captivity. And at 70 years, most of the people died in captivity. Uh, a handful of young, young people were able to go back into, into the promised land. And by that time, when they were young and in captivity, they started thinking of those other places as home. And how long does it take to really think of another place as home uh, depends on how devoted you are to home, but still, you live someplace for 10, 20, 30 years, it becomes home. No matter how you look at it, it becomes home. That's where I know, that's I know the language, I know the activities, and I know the places to go to get entertained or whatever it might be, and it becomes home. But they were told, you're going to go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. So they, there was a hope. We're going to go home in 70 years. Uh, my kids get to go home. They don't know what home. They don't know what home is, but they get to go back to home. Yeah, they're going to go back to. They're going to go get to go back to the promised land. Uh, so there was all of that going on in, in there. Verse 12, and it came to pass when the. And it shall come to pass in the, when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, says the Lord, for their iniquity and the, land of the Chal and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolation. I will bring upon them, upon that land, all my words which I have pronounced against it. 
even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. So God says at the end of that 70 years, Babylon was going to pay for their, for their iniquity. Because when Babylon conquered Israel, they really were, by God's standards in other, in other books, overly harsh on the people. And God says, all right, you were my instrument. You should not have been this harsh, but because you were so harsh, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And this is something that needs to be understood even for us in our day. If God does give us the job of giving condemnation to somebody, which is very rare, it needs to be done in measure and proper. You know, if we're going to correct somebody, it needs to be done with love and kindness and strong enough to correct, but not not to try to make them feel miserable and, and awful and all of that. But he says, there's going to bring a judgment because of their evil. And he says, and in the land of the Chaldeans, I will make a perpetual desolation. And again, in our day, what is, almost the entire Middle East is desert. And if you look back in the scriptures, they talk about the, the cedars of Lebanon and all the forests that were there and the green fields. And uh, Abraham came there to, to, uh, with his herds and it was green and they was able to grow huge herds. And so it's one point in time, from what the Bible tells us, it was a lush green area. And because of the desolation that God brought on in judgment, it's been pretty much wiped out. You know, it's a harsh area, and it's desert, and a place that really shouldn't be desert if you look at its longitude and all, everything. It really should not be a desert area, and yet it is because God brought judgment against it. And, you know, like I said, when we read the scriptures, we read about pastures and greenery and all this stuff and go, wow, it's really changed. All the trees are gone. All the, all the grass is gone. And, and the fields are gone that were, that were all out there, which is why it's so amazing that Israel is a lush, lush area that produces for the world. And so we see this going on. And it says, I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. Because Jeremiah, and Jeremiah has not just been prophesying against, against Israel. He's talked about Edom and, and uh, Philistia and Assyria and Damascus and, and now uh, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. So God says, all that is being said will come true. And I think this is very important for us to always remember. When God says something, it's going to come true. Now, we may look at it and say, boy, it took an awful long time for it to come true. But God says it will come true. When we look at the end time prophecies, they haven't come about yet, but they are looking like they're starting to come true. And when all the rest of it starts falling into place, people are going to go, oh, yeah, that is exactly what that book said for those who bothered to look into it. This is exactly what Daniel said. This is exactly what Ezekiel said. This is exactly what John said in the book of Revelation. And they're going to be able to say these things happened because God brings them to fruition. 
Now, all of these information, especially in the book of Dan, uh, Revelation, it was spoken almost 2,000 years ago, a little less than 2,000 years ago. And it still hasn't been fulfilled yet. And people are always going, well, yeah, you guys want to believe that book. You know, who, it, it's been 2,000 years and those things haven't happened yet. Yeah, so why would you believe it? Well, because God said it. And I'm going to believe it because everything else he said was true. And we understand that when God says something, we can hold on to it. He didn't give a date. When he was talking to him in the Old Testament about the Messiah some 1,500 years before he came, 2,000 years before he came, almost 4,000 years if you go back to, the, to Genesis, you know, it's like he didn't tell them when it was all going to happen. He just said, it is going to happen. And sure enough, it happened. We as people, though, we get impatient because we get stuck in time and our lives are short. So we look at things and going, wow, God, you know, you said it was going to be soon, but I don't see it being soon. And you got to understand that it's soon from God's perspective. And because he's outside of time, any amount of time is soon. Because even if it's a million years for him, it's soon because he's outside of time and time has no reference to him. It'll be in the perfect time, though. And that's the important thing, is whatever God does is in the perfect time. So for him, it's all happening at the same time. Yes, because he's outside of time. So everything's soon to him. He knows the beginning from the end, so it's already done. So for him, everything is soon. God, you know, it's been 6,000 years since this has happened. You know, what is soon? He goes, yes. It's soon. A 1,000-year millennial kingdom, it's, it's, it's just a short, short period of time. We don't have no concept of God's time. We cannot understand his time, sense of time because we are stuck in our understanding of time, 24-hour days, uh, 30, 28-day uh, months with the lunar cycle. He created time for human beings so that we could have something to measure our lives by. Uh, and that's all, that's all time is about. And, you know, 24-hour days are established by the, the circle of the, of the earth, the, the uh, 28 days in a month, uh, 364 and a quarter days in a year. <laughs> and the only thing that we don't have a real reason for other than by creation is for the week, seven days. Because uh, there's no lunar e event that says, here's seven days. So we could say, yeah, it's seven days is four weeks in the lunar cycle. But still, why would you go to seven without God saying seven days and seven days of creation? So that is where we get seven day, seven day weeks. And it's common across the entire world to do seven day weeks. So all of this is, by God's perspective, totally different than our perspective. He's outside of time. He really doesn't care about time. But even in the heavenlies, there's some form of time because in, in Revelation, it tells us in, in the New Jerusalem, there will be a tree of life that gives fruit in its seasons. So even in there, there will be some form of time that is totally different than what we're used to, but we'll have some form of time. And God's still outside of that time because he's above and beyond that, beyond that one. And so we don't understand any of this, really. And all we understand is, God, it's been a long time since you were here and you haven't returned yet. 
it's been a long time since you told us that you were going to come and rule in this world and you're not here yet. And God says, it'll be soon. It'll be soon. Another couple generations, maybe not even a couple generations at our point in time. We just need to be ready always for the return of Christ and the, and the rapture and the start of the seven years of tribulation and all that because we're sitting right on the cusp of it. I really truly believe with all the evil and the anger that's going on, I believe we're right on the edge of Jesus calling his bride home and watching what's going to happen from all of this. And here he's telling them that God's going to bring this judgment upon these nations. And it says, For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. He says, All these nations have been put into subjection, and there's going to be a, a response. And when Babylon fell, the Medo Persian Empire started, and then eventually the Greek Empire started. <laughs> And then the Roman Empire started. So we've had nothing but empires since these events have happened. Verse 15, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this, of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations whom I send you to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took I the cup of the, from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me, to wit Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, and the kings thereof, and the princes thereof, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is in this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his servants, and his princes, and all of his people, and, and all the mingled people, and all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings in the land of the Philistines, and As. Ashkelon and Azoth and Ekron and the remnant of Astrod, Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon and all the kings of Tyrus and the kings of Zidon and the kings of the isles which were beyond the sea, Digdan and Temah and Buzz and all that are in the utmost corners and all the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, and the kings of Elam, and the kings of Medes, and all the kings of the north, far and near, and one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are upon the face of the earth, and the kings of Shishak shall drink after them. So here we say, and God says, there is a cup of fury, and he says, every nation is going to drink of this cup. And he lists off a whole bunch of nations. And I'm not going to read every one of those names again. But we look at those names, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, Egypt, uh, Philistia, Edom, Moab, all those nations in that area that were the nations that they knew of. All right? They're not talking about the, the, Bab, uh, the barbarian tribes of the far north or, the, or, or you know, Turkey or anything, because they really weren't aware of them. Egypt was about as far as they really understood in, in Africa, a little bit of Ethiopia just to the south of it. Uh, they were beginning to become aware of it, India because the uh, Babylonian uh, empire was stretching that far. But he lists out all these different nations and he says, all of these nations are going to drink the judgment of God. Now, I believe that this is still to happen for all of them to drink in this cup because we haven't seen the all the nations of the world because even at the total end he goes and all the nations on the north far and near 
one another and all the kingdoms of the world are going to face this judgment. I believe that's going to be during the tribulation period that this happens and, and God's judgment during the millennial kingdom as he brings everybody into captivity under him. So this is yet to happen. Now bits and pieces of, of it have happened. There's been judgment and trials and tribulations, but nothing completely of God's fury. When he sends the tribulation period, the entire world faces God's judgment. Naming places people knew. You know, number one, he didn't know the name of America or South America, so he couldn't name it and wouldn't have meant anything to people if he had. So he names all these places that people know. And so, yes, and part of it is the, the judgment is coming and, and partial fulfillments. Because remember, we've talked several times that when a prophecy was given, there was always partial fulfillments to it. So, yes, it could very well be the partial fulfillment of this. Uh, Shishak is a, another name for Babylon. It's a more poetic name for Babylon. So even Babylon was included in this judgment against all the nations. And, you know, at that time, they were the judging tool. <laughs> for all the known world. And so he says all of these nations are going to be taking in God's fury. And verse 27 says, Therefore shall you say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink you, and be drunken, and spew, and fall, and rise no more, because the sword which will be sent among you. And it shall be... If they refuse to take the cup at, thy, at your hand to drink, then shall you say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, You shall certainly drink. For lo, I begin to bring evil on the city that is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for the sword upon all the inhabitants of the world's earth, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore the prophesy you against them in all these words, saying, The Lord shall roar upon from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitations, and he shall give a shout and they, as they that tread the, the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. I'm going to stop there. So he says here, they're going to drink. And when they drink, they're going to be drunk. And then he described being drunk. Literally to them, he goes, you shall spew or vomit, and you shall fall down and rise up no more. Now, before he was talking about it in here, and I kind of glossed over it, but the idea of reeling to and fro and tottering around. God says, you are going to be drinking this, and you're going to show the signs of being drunk. And I look at our day and our world today and going, all the stupidity that's going on in our governments and the decisions they're making, you would almost swear that they were drunk. Yeah. How can you make the decisions you're making for, for the countries unless you were totally drunk or on drugs or you know, totally out of your mind? And I think they are out of their mind. I think the cup of God is already being poured out upon this world saying, you're not listening to my judgments. You're not listening to my word. Here is my fury. And the process that goes into that, where people start doing really dumb things before God, and even dumb things before the world. Some of the things we're doing, I can't understand why anybody would want to do it. Destroy families, destroy marriage. You know, Even if you're not a Christian, how can you think that destroying families and 
and marriage and, and rule of law is a good thing. You know, and I just don't understand that, how any of that stuff is looked at as being something good. And I think this is the answer. God has made them drink of his fury and they are acting drunk in their, in their decisions. And how many people do stupid things when they're drunk? And then, you know, have to be told about all the, all the, all the stupid things they did. You were the life of the party. Look at all the crazy things you did. Well, I've had many people talk about that. I go, well, what would you do in your party? I go, I don't remember. My, my friends may tell me soon. <laughs> but the nations are starting to do just that kind of stuff. Just that kind of stuff. They're falling down. And he says, there's a sword that's coming. And then he says, and if they refuse to take the cup from your hand, then you say, you'll say, you will drink. And I think this is picking up the revelation and the tribulation period. The world will drink the cup of God's wrath whether they want to or not. And this is something that is going to happen. And we see this over and over throughout history where nations rise and nations attack others and, and judgment falls upon these nations that have rejected God. But he says if they don't want to take this, they're going to take it anyway. <laughs> you can almost picture him holding, down the, holding them down and pouring the drink down their throat. And that's basically the picture that is on here. They're going to drink this cup regardless. And then he goes, therefore prophesy against them in verse 30, these words, the Lord shall roar from on high. And this idea of the roaring is the lion and conquering roar. He's been successful. He's got his food and he's roaring is the word picture behind this. And utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar. And this is the same word again. And mightily in, in this Hebrew is he shall roar, roar. And when they double up, they're, they're talking about multiplying that, the intensity of that word. Or we used mightily in front of it to try to get the idea that this, this roar is going to be very loud, very, very successful. Roar upon his habitation, and he shall give a shout, and this is a cheer, a joyful shout, as they tread against all the inhabitants of the earth. God says, I am going to be victorious. He's going to bring seven years of destruction on this world. Then Jesus returns onto Mount, on Mount Olivet and establishes his kingdom and will put the entire world under his authority and his iron rod of rule. And so all of this is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen that he will come and establish his kingdom. And looking forward to that established kingdom because we get to come back to him, get, come back with him in our glorified bodies, our perfect bodies, and reign with him during that period of time. And that's going to be a wonderful period of time, at least for us, because we won't even have a sin nature to bother us. We won't have a desire to sin. That's, I'm looking forward to it. So it'll be a wonderful time. And it says... The noise shall come even to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead with all flesh. He will give them that are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. And I love this, the noise, that, that, that cheer, because God has a quarrel with the world. I'm amazed at how patient God has been. And again, because it's in his time and it's just a short time to him, it's probably not as patient as we as we would think it is because we look at time totally different. But God has a quarrel against this world 
for its disobedience and how evil the world is becoming. And it's only God's mercy that this world hasn't been destroyed. During Noah's day, 1,500 years, just a little over 1,500 years, and God was ready to destroy the world for their sins. Since then, we've had close to 5,000 years, 4,500 years, and God has not brought judgment again yet. But he's going to bring a judgment. He's going to bring a destruction, and it's just a short time away. That he's going to bring destruction because this world deserves the destruction with its sin and it's and all the stuff that's going on and he says this will come from from even to all the ends of the world god has it and he says i will give them that are wicked to the sword says the lord so he's going to execute and even during the tribulation period i've said this several times because i've taken those numbers a quarter here a third here and everything the total number of people just from the numbers given to us is about 66% of the population of the world will be dead by the end of the seven years. That's a lot of people dying. And that's how much destruction is going to happen. And that counts just God's destruction. That doesn't count anything that happens through man against man destruction. These are just God's destructions coming upon them. And during that period of time, evil is going to rule because Satan is going to rule and and I can't even imagine how bad it would be. I've, read, I've seen the stories and movies about how bad man can be when given a free reign. And I don't think they're even anything about like what it's going to be. Whoever's strong is going to rule, and they're going to rule by vicious uh, activity. And if you don't fall under line with them, then you will be killed. And, that's, and those are above and beyond what God says he's going to kill. So it's not going to be a time to be... I've heard people, well... I just, I'll, I'll manage somehow. Well, no, you're not going to manage during that period of time unless you want to be the vicious overlord. You're not going to survive. You're going to be put under sub, submission to somebody. And it's going to be a really bad time to be alive. And verse 32, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coast of the earth, and the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered nor buried. They shall be as dung upon the ground. How you shepherds cry and wallow yourselves in the ashes, you principal of the flock and of the days of your slaughter and of their disbursements are accomplished, and you shall fall like a, like a pleasant vessel. And the shepherds shall have no way to flee, nor the principal of the flock to escape. A voice of the cry of the shepherds and the howling of the principal of the flock shall be heard, for the Lord shall have spoiled their pasture, and the peaceable inhabitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has forsaken his, cert, his co- covert as the lion in their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. So this is talking about God's great anger against everybody. He says, Behold, evil shall come forth from nation to nation. During the tribulation period, that is going to be part of what happens. People are going to be attacking other people. And the nations will totally fall apart at that point, but there will, still, there will probably still be 
governors and, and, and groups, you know, we know that the world will be split up into 10, 10, 10 boundaries, and there's going to be people within those that aren't going to like their position, their new position in the 10 boundaries, and they're going to try to fight and be, be attacked. And God says, evil will flow from nation to nation. And we're already seeing that happen. You know, we're seeing evil coming from other nations and being forced on other nations. And unfortunately, America is leading that charge on the third world to get people to agree to what all the evil that we do. And we're not the only one. It's the rest of the world doing the same thing. But evil is being pushed on people. The whole idea of homosexuality and, and transgender and, and abortion is being pushed upon the world. Evil being pushed everywhere from nation to nation being pushed. And God says the result of this is going to be a great whirlwind shall raise up from the coast. Judgments. And I look around and I think of all the different judgments we're seeing these days. Earthquakes, mighty storms, you know, storms out on the east that have dropped feet of snow. Not, you know, not just small storms, but several, what was it, four feet in, one, in some places on the on the northeast, storms of a generation, and I think next generation we're going to see the same thing again because God's bringing judgment. You know, hurricanes, each year we have the hurricane of the century uh, because of the judgments that are coming upon this world. And people need to recognize that this is God's judgment. And I'm fully in, in, intent to say these are God's judgments, these earthquakes, these mighty storms or lack of storms, depending on which way he's taking it, are all God's judgment, just as he's always done in the past to try to get people's attention. Are you going to pay attention? Are you going to turn to me? And it's very interesting that, you know, the governments and, the, and especially the insurance companies, they call these great storms acts of God, but they don't recognize that they're acts of God. You know it's climate change. Well, I've said all along, there definitely is climate change. And it's not technically man-made other than man's disobedience that God is bringing judgment on us. We are seeing climate change, but not for the reasons that everybody thinks. Not for the reasons that everybody says. Yeah, not because we used hairspray or drove our cars or cows farting into the fields uh, and all the other things they tell us that are causing it. But God says all of this, he goes, and this is very interesting. And the slain of the Lord shall be found in that day from one end of the earth unto the other end of the earth, and they shall not be lamented, nor gathered, nor buried, and they shall be dung upon the ground. During the tribulation period, people are going to die so fast that I think this is exactly what he's talking about. You can't even, you can't cry for everybody because you would be no tears for everybody you're crying for. Where are you going to bury 66% of the population? And they're just going to be piled up like cordwood, you know, because there's no place to put them. No, they're dying too fast. When, when one-third of the population of the world dies, what do you do with them? You know, we have enough trouble when 10 or 20,000 people die, what do you do with them? And we're going to be talking about millions of people dying, if not billions of people dying, very quickly. And they won't even be buried. And it will get to the place where there's deaths so common that people won't even lament seeing people die. They'll be happy that they're alive, probably. And I can't even picture that. You know, right now we, we, we sorrow. Even if somebody we don't really love dies, we kind of are sorrowful that. But there will be a time when there's so much death that people will say, 
Oh, so what? Another person died. And we're almost there in some places. I've quit watching any of the morning news out of Phoenix because every day there's at least three stories about somebody being shot. And it's like, I'm just tired of hearing it. And I know that's callous and everything, but it's like, there's so much death every day being reported. It's like, who cares if there's another, another person shot? And I know that's very callous. I know that those families care and everything, but it's just, there is a callousness to it. But it is the same thing. Like you say, you hear it so much that it all of a sudden stops impacting you. And it's the same thing when we look at sin. We see and hear sin so much that sometimes it's hard for us to even care that it's sin anymore. And we have to be careful about that. When we see so much fornication, so much adultery, so much homosexuality, so much murder, so much theft, it starts to really wear down on us and, and are conscious of it's wrong because we see it so much. And that's why people can go out and do it because it's put in front of their face in the news, in the movies, in the, in the, in the television shows they watch. They see all the stuff over and over and over again so that when they now hear it in the news, it's not that big a deal. When it's presented to them, it's not that big a deal. And I was struck back a while ago and before I came here when a pastor was talking about how he had seen uh, something happen you know, out there and he was just horrified by it. And I'm going, yeah, well, I see it so much. Maybe I've got a problem because I, I've seen it so much that I'm no longer horrified by it. Even though I know it's wrong and all of that, I'm not horrified like he was. But it did make an impact on me saying, I've got to look at something and see how do I change my attitude toward the sins that I'm seeing. Uh, and it's something that's very important for us because it is easy to get callous toward, toward sin and toward activities that are going on. Um, and he says, how you shepherds cry and wallow yourself in the ashes. <laughs> so howl for, for the pain, uh, cry out for help, and roll around in ashes, the sackcloth and ashes idea, repentance. And then you principal of the flock, or you great and noble ones of the flock, you leaders, in other words, for the days of your slaughter and your desperations are accomplished and you shall fall like a pleasant vessel. This is kind of an interesting picture. A pleasant vessel, something that is usually very fragile. And it says that that falls, what ends up happening to a you know, you find china, if it falls, it's not like your everyday plate that's usually thick and hard, and if it falls, it may or may not break. The fine china, you don't have to make it fall very far, and it's going to break and crack and chip. And this is what he's saying. You, you noble guys, you, your time is coming as well, and you shall be like that fine china in your cabinet that falls and breaks. And once it breaks, you can't put it back together, and that's the, that's the point of it. He says... When that falls, you are not going to be put back together again because you have your punishment coming. You leaders. And this is very true, and our leaders need to understand that when they make decisions that are against God, they're going to have to answer. They have to answer for the, national, for the nation's sins that they lead the nation into. And it's going to be a very strict thing. God takes authority seriously. And these leaders that we have in our country that don't take their, their position serious are going to be surprised when they stand before God and have to say, why did you make these laws? Why did you let this go on? Why didn't you stop it? Why did you 
Why did you have things go forward? Everybody's going to have to answer for what they did. A pastor has to answer for how his church runs. A husband has to answer for what happens in his family. Governments have to answer for the decisions that they have made, good and bad. You know, it's, they're going to have to say, this is why I did it. And God takes authority very serious, and it's all through the scripture that he takes it very serious. David said, I will not touch Saul because he is God's anointed. God has to take him out. And until God takes him out, I am not going to touch him because he has to answer to God. And if I take him out, then I have to answer to God why I overstepped my authority. And this is something that's very important for other people to understand. God puts authorities in place, and we are to be submitted to those authorities until God takes them out. And the shepherds shall have no way to no way to flee, nor the principle of the flocks to escape. So God says the leaders are not going to be able to escape. Matter of fact, the nations weren't able to escape, so obviously the leaders uh, had no escape. And sometimes leaders do escape the, the judgments because they run away from the people and let the people suffer for what they did. But God says they will not have it. The vo voice of the cry of the shepherds and the howling of the principle of the flock shall be heard, for the Lord has spoiled their pastures. Everything that they thought was good God's going to destroy. And when I think about, when he's talking about all the evil, their pastures were not good green pastures. They were bogs and, of sin and, and corruption, but they thought they were good. You know, look at what I've created. It is my creation, and I think it's wonderful. And God says, well, I'm going to destroy your, your, your wonderful creation because it's evil and bring judgment on it. And the peaceable habitations are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He hath forsaken his covert. And a covert is a thicket or a, a, a lair. God says, I've forsaken my safe places. All right? The animals go to their lairs and are supposed to be safe places. The thickets, if you're a, a smaller animal, the thicket is your safety because the big animals can't come and get you. God, and they're saying, God has forsaken all of those as the lion for their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. God's saying there's no place to hide. No place to hide. You can't go into the thickets. You can't go into your lairs, your caves, whatever you want to say. God says there will be no protection when, the, when his anger moves. And in Revelation, it talks about people going to the mountains and going to the caves and saying, we're going to be, you know, fall on us. We're so, we're so bad. You know, things are so bad. The caves fall on us, hide us. And there would be no protection when God moves. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. In that last day, there will be no safe spot to go to. I am glad we're not going to be here. Because people go, well, you know, we, God would protect us. Well, God will protect, but there's still going to be a lot of death and destruction, even amongst his people during this period of time, because everybody's going to be judged for that, because the only ones there are those that did not accept Christ, and everybody else is going to be judged. Now, there will be the 144,000 Jews that are representing God. They will bring people in. We don't know how many people will make it through. But how hard will it be to make it through to the, to the end of, for the millennial kingdom? It's going to be tough. Now, God may let a number of them survive because they're his. He may supernaturally protect them. And there may not be 66% loss in their, in their population, but there's still going to be death and destruction. And they can't take the mark of the beast, so there's hunger and all kinds of provisions that have to be made for them from God.
It's going to be a terrible time for them. There's going to be death and, and disease amongst them. And God doesn't say that he's going to protect his people that fully because he took his, he took his bride out. And the rest of them are going to have to suffer for the consequences of their decision to stick around. And it'll be tough. Many of them are going to die. Many of them are going to be beheaded for their, for their faith. They're going to be executed for not taking the mark of the beast. And all these things will happen, and very few of them will actually live to the end to enter into the millennial kingdom. And I don't know how many it'll be. It doesn't tell us in the scriptures how many it'll be. In a thousand years, there's going to be a pretty good population from their, from their group. But it won't be a trillions and billions of people, probably. But there could be a number of people, depending on how fruitful and abundantly they multiply. You know, I and mean, they have a thousand, you know, somewhere around a thousand years of lifespan again. You know, they can have a lot of kids during that period of time. And we don't know how far they're going to be. All we know is that we're told that if somebody dies at 100 years old, he's considered a child. So I believe we're going to be back to six, seven, eight hundred years lifespans during the millennial kingdom. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, show us what, how you want us to do. Lord, we pray for our country and for the nations, Lord, that they will turn and repent, that we can see an extended time going forward. But Lord, if this is the end, we say, Lord, come quickly. Take us, take us and let this be done. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.